Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. We are here to get you sound and smart about crypto stuff. And I am Zach Seward. That's Jen Sinassi. Adam B. Levine on the other side. Let's do this thing. Adam, you're starting us off with a little bit of a scoop. What do you got? Thanks, Zach. Yeah. First up, the world's biggest asset manager, that would be BlackRock, is gearing up for their own Bitcoin ETF, reportedly using Coinbase for custody and pricing, according to a person familiar with the matter. It's honestly a really interesting time to make the move and raises a couple of questions, not least of which is, if this is a futures-based vehicle, the only kind that's been approved in the US to date, why would Coinbase custody be involved? And on the other hand, if Coinbase custody is involved, What does BlackRock know that would push them towards an approach that's been uniformly and repeatedly rejected by the regulator to date? Jen, what do you think? You know, I had the same questions as I was reading the story, and it feels like another road to boring story, right? Despite all of the regulatory action that's happening, despite what we see going on in the markets and tokens reacting, we still have the largest asset manager in the world filing for an ETF. Granted, we don't know if it is a spot or futures ETF. I guess my question uh, to you, Adam, is what is the likelihood that this could be a spot ETF? And like, what do you, what do you think about the timing? It feels, it feels like odd timing, I must say. Yeah, I mean, we're in dep- definitely the depths of a bear market right now. And ETF vehicles, especially on the future side of the table, really haven't performed very well. One of the downsides about future contracts is that Effectively, when markets are going are going down, uh, then you have kind of the the losses get amplified, right? When they're going up, it's kind of the other way. And one of the things about it also is that it doesn't affect the the kind of price of the underlying asset because none of the actual effectively what you're doing with that type of ETF is you're buying futures contracts to bet on the price appreciation of Bitcoin or not, depending on the type of vehicle. So that means that if you have a billion dollars worth of you know ETF demand that goes into an ETF. It doesn't actually change the supply uh, demand dynamics of the underlying asset at all. And that's one of the reasons why kind of uh, the futures approach has been interesting is because the reason why the SEC has said that they prefer futures is that they're concerned that the underlying assets uh, and the exchanges are could, potentially could be manipulated. 
Um, that's a funny argument because if you have futures on something, you're betting on the price of something. And that would mean that futures would definitely be kind of subject to any distortions that were there in the underlying asset. But, but I think it does come back to that other question. Now, it's, it's inevitable that this is going to happen. This has always been a stalling action from the SEC. And I think that's the interesting question is, does BlackRock know something that we don't that would push them towards making this push now when the market really doesn't seem to support it? And yet, here we are. Zach? I'd say it might be a bit, you know, there might be a bit of foresight here, right? They're going to say, hey, Bitcoin's going to come back. We want to be first in the market with something that could be of use to our clients. They're a longtime partner with Coinbase. So I think if this reported um, connection is true, that would make sense, right? They announced a partnership with Coinbase, I think, I guess back in the summer of 2022. Um, so the fact that they would work through Coinbase here, maybe it's just as a continuation of what they had set in motion a while back, right? It may not be something especially new, but it may be a way that gets product into the hands of BlackRock customers in a way that's more comfortable to them. Uh, the spot Bitcoin ETF was this long sort of holy grail of the industry and is still very much in question as whether or not that will ever see the light of day. Um, so one would think that maybe this would be the, the futures approach since it has worked, but who knows? Again, this is according to a source. This is a scoop. Uh, this has not yet been announced by either of these teams. So this is all reportedly at present and things are often subject to change. It is fascinating, I think, to see movement on the Bitcoin ETF side uh, in the wake of what we saw with GPTC, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust disclosure, Grayscale is a sister company of CoinDesk, all that good stuff. But that the GBTC trade really wrecked a lot of people in the last cycle. And I think um, having a Bitcoin ETF in the market might be a more safe path going forward for a lot of these more traditional financial firms who want access to Bitcoin um, without necessarily going whole hog into the asset itself. So the fact that BlackRock is behind this is potentially really large and potentially suggests that Again, TradFi players, big ones, are still interested in Bitcoin as an asset uh, and getting the products onto the market that they think will be useful to them uh, come next interest cycle, come next bull cycle. So it's going to be interesting to see if they hit, this hits the market before then. Uh, Adam, I think I saw your hand. I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, again, you can look at what kind of is going on with the U.S. Central Bank, where yesterday we had kind of the first pause after a really record run you know, of rate increases up 2,000% in just over a year uh, in terms of the core rate from uh, 0.25 up to 5.25 is kind of the upper bound of that range. So, I mean, like you've got weird dynamics in markets right now. And those weird dynamics in markets are pushing people into areas that are typically not in their kind of comfort zone because... Again, one of the things about monetary policy in this fashion is there's no place to hide. It's not like there are safe assets. It's not like you can look to another currency, you know, and it's not like you can even look to something like Bitcoin. And, and again, like the, the, the difference between the spot ETF and the futures ETF is, I think, really interesting in that spot ETFs are better vehicles in many ways. Other countries have approved them and they haven't seemed to have had a problem with them. And the U.S. has been a notable outlier in that kind of forcing people down the futures paths even as it has delivered worse results for investors. So, I, you know, I mean, that's really where I come down to is, is just like, it's, it's an odd move from the regulator. It feels like it's more of a stall tactic than it is really anything else. And if that's true, again, and if some of my cynicism about the regulators and the revolving door that operates between them, then, you know, this seems like kind of prime ground for, hey, we're going to improve one from a trusted source that just happens to be the largest asset manager in the world who we have very close proximity to from a power perspective. So that's the cynic in me. But uh, what do you think, Zach? I mean, I will leave your cynical take with you and I will move on. But that's some good stuff. A lot of good, interesting things here. TradFi still interested in the crypto world. Pretty crazy. All right. I'm taking it and I'm going to Hong Kong. You guys ready? 
come with me. We're going overseas. We're heading to Asia and we're looking at some significant jockeying in the Asian market for who's going to be the next big crypto hub. And this is a huge development, I think, uh, should this report prove true. Hong Kong Central Bank is saying, hey, banks, you should take on crypto businesses. You should serve these clients. That's kind of a key missing ingredient for how to establish a crypto hub. If there's hesitancy to bank some of these riskier firms, that's long stifled the ability for these firms to grow up and have the services that they need to provide key services to their clients and their customers. So if this proves to be true and the Hong Kong regulator is saying, hey, we're already pushing our licensure thing. It's sort of the hot ticket in town among a lot of firms. You also need to play ball on the banking side, get with it. Uh, that's actually a really interesting development. It's certainly worth talking about as various markets over there look to serve the crypto industry. I'm going to throw this to Jen. I'm really fascinated by this sort of geopolitical horse race. And I think this is a key development on that front. I'm so interested in watching what goes on in Hong Kong and what that means for crypto in China. You know, there's this real big push as of late for Hong Kong to become not just a crypto hub, but a Web3 hub. And then you compare that to the conversations that we're having in, in the States. And it just feels like the rest of the world is really making progress, is really getting clarity. And we're here continuously asking the same questions. And it feels like, you know, throwing a ball at the wall, it's bouncing back. And we just throw, and there's like no progress being made at the most recent financial house hearing that was earlier this week. There were a lot of representatives who pointed to the recent banking crisis and and kind of made a correlation between their crypto clients and those banking failures. And that's also a conversation we heard while the banking crisis was happening. Now we have um, the regulator in Hong Kong saying, banks, you got to get with it. These um, exchanges are going to get their licenses and you need to serve them. You need to be less afraid. I know there's a quote in the story and I think they said like, you need to be less afraid of them. That's really interesting. I want to point out that the exchanges that are in, uh, that are operating in Hong Kong right now have applied. They haven't received their license yet. I think they have 18 months to do all of the things that they need to do to get those licenses. And it'll be interesting to see how, how the banks respond to regulators, because these banks are not only banks that operate in Hong Kong. They also operate in jurisdictions where regulators may not be pushing them to operate with crypto companies. I think there's going to have to be like this cultural mindset shift. And I wonder how that's going to affect their operations in the rest of the world. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the way the banks have been behaving and just, I mean, historically, the reality of them is that especially as we've gone into the modern era, especially with the larger institutions, you're effectively talking about a partnership between kind of the, the banks and the government. They operate under the regulation of the government. They uh, typically are monitored by the government. And the government uses them as a way to sort of enact certain policy goals, um, as well as to get insight into things that typically they wouldn't actually have the ability to access. So that's true here in the U.S., where we have very, very strong civil liberty protections, at least in theory. Um, and that's definitely true in a place like China. And so the kind of interesting question for me is less about what's happening today. And it's more about what happens in five years. What happens if a lot of companies make this move and they, you know, sort of set up under, under a set of rules that they think is stable? But then that creates the preconditions where they need to continue to be in that stable situation. And the stability of the situation is based entirely on kind of short, medium term uh, government priorities and policies and things like that. So that's kind of my concern here is that the U.S. is not only pushing people out of the U.S., you know, pushing these companies and projects out of the U.S., but they're pushing them over to places that have much weaker standards of rule of law. And where, again, even as not great as the U.S. has been behaving, 
there are definitely problematic things that could emerge, especially if you find yourself established in one of these markets and then things suddenly change for reasons that you had no foresight into and which really are not in your control. So I think it's a dangerous moment, actually. But it is, again, kind of the natural result of the obvious place where this stuff would get built, which is in the West, uh, you know, basically rejecting it because, again, fear of competition, fear of a variety of things. Zach? Crypto projects are very much looking to Asia, whether it's Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, Japan, they are very much seeing that as the market in which they need to be more active at this present moment, because that's where the activity is. That's where a bit more regulatory embrace is happening. That's where people are actually using some of this stuff. So the idea that this sort of bolsters that case and is another sort of piece of the, of the, of the picture is absolutely relevant to projects who are thinking about what to do in this environment. And a lot of them are reaching the same conclusion. We need to double down our efforts in Asia in two, three, four key geographies there. And this certainly is part of that big story that we're seeing, I think, among projects across the space. So another good one to watch. We certainly will do so. That's it for now. I'm going to toss it to Jen. What do you got? All right. We are talking about Apple. They've rejected the latest version of non-custodial Lightning-enabled Bitcoin wallet, Zeus, saying that it must provide proof of requisite licenses and permissions for approval to facilitate the transmission of a virtual currency, or they will face rejection by the App Store. This comes one day after it issued a notice to decentralized social media app Damas, giving it 14 days to drop its Bitcoin tipping feature. Adam, I'm going to toss this one off to you. Apple is clamping down, it seems, on crypto, which is not really anything new. But what do you make of these news? I mean, it's, it's a repetition of an old story for sure, which is that Apple is concerned about two things, really. One, they're concerned about government regulation. They're concerned about them looking like they're enabling something that the government doesn't want. But more importantly, they're concerned about maintaining their monopoly, especially the action that took place the day before with the 14 days for Damas. So Damas is a content application where you can send tips to someone and you can do it over the Lightning Network, which means it bypasses Apple's uh, kind of closed garden uh, you know, monopoly on the kind of app store with the 30% that they take. But it's not actually used for purchases under normal circumstances. Apple's concern was that it could be used for purchases under some circumstances that don't appear to be the case right now. So again, you're looking at, at kind of pretense here, which is really all designed to protect the monopoly. And again, there's been some action over uh, on kind of the European side of the offense, where Apple is actually being forced to, in some ways, open up uh, and kind of give up that monopoly. But that's not happening here in the US. And the fact that they're doing it over in Europe, and then they're not doing it here, again, just tells you how valuable it is for them to basically be the gatekeeper. And gatekeeper, again, is I think a key word in all of the stories that we're talking about here, which is that People who have a close proximity to power, whether you're talking about BlackRock, whether you're talking about the banks in Hong Kong, whether you're talking about Apple, they have a lot to lose from these technologies actually you know, delivering on what they, they hope to. And it's actually better for them in many ways if they stay speculative instruments, because it means they can make money off of them, especially for a company like BlackRock, without it actually threatening their kind of source of power. So I think that's the kind of theme throughout today's stories. And it's the one I'm certainly watching. Jen? I toss it off to Zach. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, a different day. Same story, right? Apple's still very hesitant about this whole crypto stuff. You know, remember like when we were, everyone was all bullish because like the Bitcoin white paper was secretly hidden in Macs everywhere. And they're like, oh, Apple. They're I here. was excited about us. that. They that that was me. Next doing an impression of me. No, <laughs> they hate us. Apple does not, not having it. So yeah, we've seen this time and time again. They are sort of that ultimate gatekeeper, right? Because they control how we access the apps on our phones and people who want to add apps that send money in different ways 
they don't have access to that really vast marketplace for getting those apps into people's worlds. So uh, yeah, I, I echo Adam. We see this time and time again. And every time the crypto world thinks that Apple is warming to them, I'm always like, this is a trap. And it's proved to be the case yet again. But Jen, I'll, I'll toss it to you. Toss it to you. Yeah. You, you know, I, I point to recent news. We recently heard Apple said they were going to tax in-app NFT purchases. And I think something like 30%. And this was like not a surprise to anyone in the industry, right? Like Apple is known for this really kind of extractive business model, but they have, they have like a grip on us, right? We talk so much about how are we going to get users to these decentralized apps? How are we going to pull them away from these really convenient ecosystems that the web two players um, have created? And I'm not sure how we do that, right? They're, I think that their actions show that they recognize this as a threat, but everyone is still using, you know, the app store. If your app is not in the app store, you can't get users. And so I think that we're in this like really interesting place where we're like pushing and, and, and pulling. And I say this all the time. There's going to maybe be this, um, catalyst event that will make people see, you know, the benefits of the decentralized apps. But right now they really need Apple and, and they're not getting any slack from them. Wah, wah. We are talking about Web3 Gaming. Leading game retailer GameStop is teaming up with the TELUS Foundation to expand its Web3 Gaming offerings. The partnership will see Web3 Games using TELUS's infrastructure get linked to GameStop's upcoming gaming launchpad called Player. Joining us now is TELUS Foundation Head of Business Development, AJ Dinger. Welcome to the show, AJ. Morning, guys. Very excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. By the way, very a lot of macro stuff going on uh, over the last couple of weeks. So appreciate you giving me a few minutes to talk about this. We're very excited about it. Of course, we're happy to have you here. Now, we just spoke about Apple deplatforming or threatening to deplatform apps. This is a really big issue that's spoken about in the Web3 gaming um, ecosystem. You know, Apple, Steam have deplatformed a lot of Web3 games. Is this product an answer to that? Yeah, I think this is, and you're seeing, you know, more than just player, you know, you've seen Epic take the same approach, right? They've got now their own game launcher. And a lot of this is to avoid that, that 30% rake, which by the way, you know, Steam, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, of the platforms in space have basically kind of followed Apple's, you know, footprint on this and said, Hey, you know, the platform is the most important thing. Uh, we're going to take our pound of flesh. So, you know, hopefully this, and I'd say generally, in Web3, when you look at the fee structures of a lot of these things, they're meaningfully less than what, what um, the traditional models are. So it represents a huge opportunity. Um, this is certainly a piece of that. Thanks, AJ. I guess my question is like, what's working in Web3 gaming? Like what's showing like early signs of promise? What's sticking with gamers and also builders? Like we hear a lot about Web3 gaming as may maybe this potentially next big wave that brings in all sorts of people to the crypto ecosystem. Next time around, here in the early innings, what are you seeing as working? Yeah, so I would say, and certainly you're right, we're still in the early innings there. I mean, if you kind of look back at the history of Web3 Gaming, a lot of it was like, hey, jump into the casino, buy an NFT or do a land sale purchase and, and hope that there's a game in 18 months. But really what you were doing is effectively speculating on the token and, and the game itself for any hype. What you've seen now, and I was just at 3XP in Pasadena um, last week, it was really one of the first conferences where you actually saw gameplay being kind of first and foremost, and there were actually quality games that people wanted to sit down and play. So that's been a really exciting step in kind of the evolution here. 
but gameplay first is is really important. And you know, we can when we start talking a little bit about the the GameStop Player Launcher, right? That's going to be a critical aspect of that as well, right? Free to play options. You're not forced to buy uh, an NFT or an avatar to actually play the game, but. Play, you know, quality gameplay, enjoyable gameplay first is starting to come to the fore. And that's probably been, you know, 24 months in the making. A lot of companies were able to raise a lot of money. Um, and now you're starting to see some of these, uh, the products actually coming to market. So what I would ask is, what does it actually mean for GameStop and for player to be supporting or to be sort of presenting Web3 games, right? Like the traditional model around this type of thing is a reseller model where effectively you have inventory concerns and then somebody, somebody is effectively buying a game from GameStop. It doesn't seem likely based on how Web3 works that that's what's going to happen here. So what's the, what's the kind of value in it besides narrative for a company like GameStop to push something? Good question. I have to be very careful about opining on behalf of GameStop. What I think it means for the space is, you know, if you look at, you know, kind of what GameStop represents, it's it's really interesting, right? Because they're effectively the Switzerland of kind of the gaming world, right? They're not a, a studio, they're not a game developer, but they are a major distributor in the space, right? So they have 50 million customers annually, you know, 4,000 plus stores worldwide. They've got uh, 30 million uh, folks that come to their website every month. They've got 6 million paying pro subscribers. And they typically, on a, a major game release, will actually account for uh, about 50% of the initial sales, right? So they're the, the largest distributor for, you know, call it AAA and kind of traditional game launches. So we're really excited about that. And then if you put it in the context of the broader, you know, Web3 gaming ecosystem, it was funny. I was talking to a lot of the, the game uh, gaming companies at the show last week, and I was starting my number with, hey, there's about a million gamers um, worldwide in Web3 gaming. And a lot of them would laugh at me and say, yeah, it's probably closer to you know 250 to 500,000. I mean, there's maybe 2 million active wallets that can be linked to people. You know, they say there's these huge numbers in terms of gaming volume, but most of that's bots. So let's just say it's half a million people. There are 3 billion gamers worldwide, right? So we haven't even scratched the surface. And the thing that we're really excited about with GameStop, you know, uh, there are several game launchers that are coming to the fore, but they have the distribution that a lot of these other game launchers don't have to get eyeballs and get people actually playing in Web3. And then what we're trying to do is put all the infrastructure place now that allows that experience to feel much more like web 2 right so you know easy login no seed phrases social login email login right you got a wallet you may not even know it you want to buy an nft which by the way we're not calling nfts anymore because that's still a four-letter word um digital assets right i mean if you look at kind of you know any sort of polling on gamers um 75% of gamers would be willing to pay more for a skin, an avatar, an in-game asset if they knew they owned it and had resale value. I mean, that's, you know, at its core, one of the biggest value propositions of this. Obviously, there's a lot of kind of hangover from some of the early, uh, you know, GameFi stuff that is that has kind of kept traditional gamers out. We think this has the opportunity to break that down, which is why we were so excited about the partnership. Yeah, I want to go to that. I'm glad you brought it up. I want to go to sort of the, the cultural uh, headwinds here with winning over gamers, right? We saw it with like, there was all sorts of examples of this, like Ubisoft rolled out some NFT thing and there was this huge uproar. Everyone was all pissed off. Gamers said it was like this fresh grift. I want to talk about sort of like the pulse check in the gaming community for whether or not the embrace of Web3 gaming may be there this time around. And again, what sort of like narrative or feature tweaks 
um, are involved in making uh, Web3 gaming more accessible to the masses. What are you seeing sort of the temperature check of how gamers like or dislike the idea of Web3 gaming? Yeah, so from my standpoint, it comes back to gameplay quality, right? So the one of the big challenges that has left the stigma is that there were a lot of games that either didn't have games and it was you were purchasing an NFT for the promise of a future game. Um, and it was a clever fundraising tactic for a lot of these early stage games. Um, and the traditional fundraising mechanisms for gaming are pretty exploitive in general. So it was a, it was a creative solution to an age old problem in the space. But again, it comes back to quality of gameplay. And I think if you have that, that kind of that breaks down the barriers. If people want to play the games, then they will come and play the games. I think a free to play option is critically important. You shouldn't be price gated out of the, you know, kind of from day one and say, buy this and hope that the game is fun. You should be able to play the game and say, hey, two weeks later, I mean, this is more of a traditional gaming um, journey is, hey, I really like this game. But if I buy this thing, it gets me, you know, greater access or some sort of advantage or something, right? That's how I think this whole kind of incepting into the Web3 uh, space is going to happen. All right. Well, AJ Dinger from the Telos Foundation, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Web3 Gaming. Uh, have a great day. Thanks for the time, guys. Really appreciate it. Yep. Happy to do it. And that's it for the show today. Thanks for being here on The Hash. We're going to leave it there. I'm Zach Seward. we got Jen Sinassi and Adam Levine. We will be back tomorrow on a Friday. We wish you well and have a good one. Bye now. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secure Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.